I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew's Gospel, and we'll be looking this morning at chapter number 6. <clears throat> Matthew's Gospel, and chapter number 6. We're going to read verse 5 down to verse number 13 of God's Word. So let's read the Word of the Lord together. <clears throat> and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues, and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard, for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. And God will add His blessing to the reading of His own holy and errant and infallible Word to our hearts this morning. Let's unite our hearts together in prayer. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we come before Thy throne of grace this morning, recognizing our utter dependence upon Thee. God, we would not be coming to the place of prayer if we had any merit or any ability within ourselves. But God, we recognize our inability this morning. And God, we agree with the hymn writer, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And so, God, we pray that Thou wouldst be pleased to come down and manifest Thy presence amongst Thy people here this morning. God, we come before Thee, O God, confessing our sin and our shortcomings. And God, we fail so short and fall so short of Thy glory on a daily basis. O oh God, I pray that Thou wouldst encourage us today, that God, that You would be the glory and the lifter up of our head, that God, that we would know the goodness of the Lord upon us, the good hand of the Lord God upon us this day. God, we pray as well, God, that You would just continue to guide and direct this flock here in Lexington, that God, that You would add to their number, and that, O oh God, that You would build this church and that, God, it would be a glorious church in this area, spreading abroad the glorious gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, God, we pray to that end. God, how we pray, O oh God, for our land. We pray for revival and awakening and stirring. God, you know the desperate need of the hour in our land. God, our land sits in a slumber, but how, O oh God, we pray that Thou wouldst awaken it. Awake, O oh sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And how we pray to that end that you would do such a stirring, that, O oh God, that thou wouldst be pleased to reach down thy hand and stir the waters and move in this land of ours, that we might see what our fathers have told us of and what our fathers' fathers have told us of, and what we have read in the books of history, that, O oh God, that you would be pleased to visit this land with awakening and revival blessing, and that, God, that you'd be pleased to begin it even here in Lexington, and that you would be pleased, O oh God, to sweep many sinners into the kingdom of the Lord. God, we pray to that end, increase our faith. Lord, we believe, but help thou our unbelief. God, all things you said are possible to him that believeth. You said if we would have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, we could say to this mountain, be thou picked up and be thou cast into the sea, and it would be granted. Oh God, would you give us that kind of faith that believes thee for great and mighty things and these days mindful of the truth that it is unto you which are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. And so God, we pray, come now, meet with us, bless the message. I pray, oh God, that my preaching and my teaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that this church's faith would not stand in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. And God, we give you praise, honor, and glory for what you shall do this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to look particularly this morning at verse number 9 of our text. And as I continue to come to you, I know that it will, may not be consistently every week, but over the times that I come to you, I want to begin preaching to you a series on the Lord's Prayer. It will take about eight messages, but we will find ourselves each time I come to you for the next eight times in this passage examining the Lord's Prayer. So I've entitled the message, Teach Us to Pray. And if there is anything more needful, I believe, today, it is men and women that know how to pray. Many do not pray because they do not know how to pray. They do not know where to even begin. They say, well, pastor, I would pray, but I don't even know how to start. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to ask the Lord. And I don't even know how to end my prayer. How, Lord, do you want me to pray? And many times we find ourselves convicted because we read of the praying in the book of Acts. And the praying that was there in the book of Acts wrought mighty miracles. And we do not see it in our own day. And we see the men and women that labored all night in prayer. And we see the mighty miracles taking place because of the praying of these people. And we are convicted because we do not see it in our own day. We have heard of the all-night prayer meetings where God came down in a mighty power. And many times our prayers last no longer than 10 minutes. And we wonder what God is doing. Our desire is the same as the disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. And the Lord does precisely this in this passage. He gives us, as it were, an outline. He gives us a template by which we are to pray. 
So as I said in a series of eight messages, we want to bring to you sermons on the subject, How to Pray the Lord's Way. And we will look at each of these clauses in the Lord's Prayer in order that we may pray aright. Because I think you and I as believers want to be able to pray aright. And today we want to consider the first clause in verse number 9, which says, Our Father, which art in heaven. That is the first section of this prayer that we want to consider. Now, we see in our Father, number one, our relation. And then we see which art in heaven, we see His habitation. So as we approach the Lord... In prayer, we first begin with our relation to Him. And as we understand our relation to Him, we begin to understand next His habitation, which is in heaven. And these two concepts are vital as we go to the Lord in the place of prayer. And apart from understanding this, all is vain. But I want us, before we even get to verse number 9, looking at these two things, I want us to consider what Jesus says in verses 5 to 8, following up to verse number 9. And I want you to notice with me in verse number 5, that Jesus, as He is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, is addressing hypocrites. He addresses the hypocrites that do their good deeds before others, their alms before others. And verse number 5 now, he is addressing those that pray, and they are hypocrites, and they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They stand in the synagogue, and they pray up and pray before everyone else. They stand on the street corners and pray in order that they might be seen of men. So we see in verse number 5 that these people desire a recognition. They seek recognition in the church. They seek recognition in the community. Why? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. John 12 and verse number 43 tells us that. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in today, it is very much the same. There are very many people that love to come into the house of God, and they love to be recognized in the church. They love to be recognized in the community, and they do everything just to be seen of men. And the Bible says, Jesus says here, they have their reward. What is their reward? The praise of men. But He says that you and I are to seek a recognition not of men, but we are to seek the recognition of heaven. And Jesus says to us in verse number 6, that when you pray, you are to enter into your closet. And the word closet there has the idea of a secret room. Shut up unto God entirely where no one is. And you shut the door and you pray to your Father in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The disciple is to seek the recognition of one. They are to seek the audience of one. They are to seek the audience of the Lord. We're to get as far away from men as possible and be shut up unto God. That does not mean that public prayer is inappropriate. It's appropriate. We read about that in the book of Acts. But there is a strong desire that arises within us because we are still sinners. We are sinners saved by grace. Oh God, we have been justified. You're right. We have been justified by God's grace. But we are still sinners saved by grace. And there still arises within us a pride. And we desire... Uh, to 
show off, as it were, our spirituality many times in the place of prayer in public. And we must guard this in our own hearts and our own minds. And this is why Jesus stresses the importance of praying by yourself alone. There are those that seek recognition in the church and the community, but Jesus says we must be one that seeks the recognition of the Lord of glory. He goes on to say, not only are those are seeking recognition, but he says, there are those that are using vain repetition. In verse 7, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as a heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now what is Jesus referring to when he speaks about vain repetition? Well, at the time there were various... Religions. There were Greek religions, Roman religions of that time. And many agreed that these vain repetitions were people worshiping false idols and gods. And they were using so-called tongues and ecstatic utterances. And they thought that by their much speaking in other languages that somehow they were going to uh, be heard. Or some say it was just the same prayers repeated over and over again, which reminds us of the Roman Catholic Church where you go to confession and the priest gives you various prayers to pray and you pray the rosary and you pray your Hail Mary and you praise our, pray our Father. And they repeat it again and again, but they have no value whatsoever upon the soul. Here Jesus says, when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard by their much speaking. There is something you must understand as it regards praying and repetition. More praying does not always equal quicker answers. Some people have the idea, well, if I just pray more and more and more and more, somehow I'll get a quicker answer. But I read this and I thought it was good, and I quote, Prayers are heard not because of their length, but when they are offered in faith. That is true. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was well known for his short praying. But he was a man that constantly lived in prayer. He was not a man that would pray for hours on end like some missionaries or pastors that you might read about. D.L. Moody was a short and to the point type of guy. And I like that. I like people that are short and to the point and tell me everything I need to know. Maybe that's a man thing, but I don't know. But Moody was short and to the point. He prayed specifically about various things, but God answered prayer because he prayed in faith. So prayers are heard not because of their length, but because they are offered in faith to God. And this is what Jesus is teaching these disciples. Not to seek the recognition of men, but to seek the recognition of heaven. And as you pray, your prayers don't need to be elaborate. They don't need to be vain repetition, but they need to be prayed from the heart and just recognize that your length of your prayer uh, is not what matters. It is the fact that it is offered in faith. Now, Jesus, after rebuking them to this, uh, to this degree, He begins to give them some instruction. Seeing that there was a problem with recognition and a problem with vain repetition, He gives them this instruction now in verse 9. He says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. And this is the instruction. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Consider Christ's instruction that is given for the template for prayer. Why is Jesus teaching them to pray? Now I think it's important that you and I look this morning at the parallel passage in Luke's account. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 11. 
Why is it that Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray? In Luke 11, in verse number 1, you read this, And it came to pass that as He was praying in a certain place, when He ceased, one of His disciples said unto Him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught His disciples. And He said unto them, When ye pray, say. There's the instruction. Now I want you to understand why is it that Jesus is teaching them to pray? Well, this teaching them to pray was sparked from a question from the disciples. They, and actually sparked by a statement. They said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples to pray. But what's interesting in Luke 11 and verse 1 is they actually heard Jesus praying to the Father. Now could you imagine what that must have been like to be there with Christ as He was communing with the Father, very God, communing with very God. These disciples heard the God-man praying to the Father in heaven. Perfect communion. This was unlike anything they had heard. They had heard Him preach and teach. They saw Him perform miracles. They tasted of the miracle. Remember when He turned the water to wine. They even touched those who were made whole. But never once did they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to preach. Teach us to teach. They never asked the Lord, teach us to perform miracles. They never asked the Lord to uh, be able to heal the sick. They never asked the Lord for any of this, but they did ask the Lord, teach us to pray. The only thing the twelve asked for was instruction in the place of prayer. This shows you and I, no doubt, the vital nature of prayer in the life of the believer. And I think that you and I would admit that it is one of the most neglected duties in our own life. And no, even if we could pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there would be some way we could improve in our prayers. There is always something to improve upon. In here, unfortunately, prayer is not on the priority list of many a Christian. Many would rather have instruction in preaching, instruction in miracle working, instruction in theology than to be instructed in prayer. And this prayer is given, this prayer that was given was not for the purpose of repeating vainly or by mere rote. Maybe you grew up in a church where they always repeated the Lord's Prayer. And you have it memorized. And I've been to churches where they repeat the Lord's Prayer and there's nothing necessarily sinful about that. But I find that many people that repeat it is just simply mere rote. And this is not why Jesus gave it to you and I. He did not give us a Lord's Prayer just for us to repeat. The Lord's Prayer is an outline. It is a template that teaches us how we are to approach God in the place of prayer. You know, how many times has this prayer been repeated, but no thought is ever given to its meaning? This prayer is given as a pattern or an outline, as I said, in which we find how we address the Lord. The Savior actually brings us into the school of prayer. And so Christ is bringing us into the school of prayer, teaching us how to pray. So he says back in Matthew 6 and verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Or you could translate it this way, pray in this way. Or pray like this. 
So he's not saying repeat these words to the Lord as you pray, as your prayer. But he is saying pray in this way, pray like this. He's giving us again a pattern, a likeness, a mirror in which we are to pray. And Christ knows the best way to pray and is the best instructor on prayer. And could you have any better teacher than God incarnate? You could not. Therefore, this is a pattern that you and I should seek to emulate in our own life. And this will be a series, once again, of eight sermons in which we will go clause by clause through the Lord's Prayer, considering it together. And again, I want us to consider the first part of this clause. He says, this is the way that you are to pray. Pray like this, pray in this way. And how are you to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father reveals, number one to us, our relationship to Him, our relation. Which art in heaven reveals His habitation. And so we want to consider those two things today. Our relation to the one that is in in an eternal habitation. Number one, our relation. To whom do you and I pray? Now this might seem like a silly question, but it really is important. Because there are a lot of people that wondered, who do I pray to? Do I pray to the Father? Do I pray to the Son? Do I pray to the Holy Ghost? To whom do I pray? Jesus said, this is how you are to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. We do not pray today to an idol. We do not pray to saints. We do not pray to departed loved ones. You will be amazed. I have a family member who just before we moved away was asking me questions. And they were a person that was raised in church. And they were asking me questions on whether it was right for them to pray to our grandmother. And I just thought about that. And they said, well, I had a dream and I saw grandma. And uh, I began to pray that one day I might be able to see her again one day. And she said, well, John, what do you think about that? And I asked her, I said... Well, is there anywhere in the Bible that addresses us to pray to our loved ones? And the answer is no. There's no, nothing in Scripture that tells us to pray to our departed loved ones. There's nothing in Scripture that tells me to pray to saints so-and-so. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells me to bow down and pray before any idol whatsoever. It is actually a violation of the Ten Commandments to do so. But we do find that prayer is to be addressed to the Father... This is an example to us of Christ. Just look at the example of Christ with me. Just look at a few verses. Just so you see that when Jesus prayed, He addresses the Father. Look with me in John chapter number 11. In John chapter number 11, in verse number 41, you find Jesus addressing the Father. In John eleven forty one, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. This is speaking about Lazarus. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. There he is addressing God in prayer. And notice that he addresses the one in prayer as Father. Notice this again even in Matthew chapter number 26. While Jesus is in the garden. And Matthew 26 and verse number 39. A verse we are familiar with. While he is there in the garden. In agony. About the bitter cup that he is about to drink. 
In Matthew 26, 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as thou wilt. There again you have him addressing the Father, even in the garden. You have him addressing the Father as he prays for Lazarus. But you even have Christ addressing the Father as He is hanging between heaven and earth for you and for me. In Luke 23, in verse number 34, He says this, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in Luke 23, verse 46, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. We see throughout the Gospels that as Jesus prayed, He addressed the Father. And He teaches you and I this morning as we pray. We pray our Father which art in heaven. So when you pray this morning, when you pray throughout the week, you address the Father. That's who Jesus addressed. He addressed the Father. One person rightly said it this way, We pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit, in the name and by the authority and merit of the Son. That is the Bible's Trinitarian prayer structure. Let me repeat that again. When you and I pray, we pray to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name or by the authority and merit of the Son. And this is very true. So I already laid the groundwork that you and I are to pray to the Father. But as we pray to the Father, we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize the Scripture says that no one can call Jesus Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And so the only way that we can pray is in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 says praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Jude 20 says praying in the Holy Ghost. Romans 8.26 says but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. So we are to pray in the power of the Spirit unto the Father. And we do this in the name or by the authority and merit of the Son. So when you end your prayer, we always pray in Jesus' name, Amen. But you know, so many people just add that on as a tradition to the end of their prayers. They add it on as a tag-on, but it is not a tag-on. There is something glorious and wonderful about praying in this way that must not be lightly taken. It's not something that we should simply rush over, where we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Just quickly rush over that. Remember what Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, it shall be done for you. So when you pray, you pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit, in the name and the authority, in the merit of Jesus Christ. So as you approach the Father, you're approaching Him not in your own merit, not in your own strength, not in your own ability, but you're approaching Him in the merits and by the blood of Christ, in the power of the Spirit, claiming what you're praying in the name of the Son. Because Jesus said, if you pray in my name, it's 
shall be granted for you. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says that you and I have boldness. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And he is there seated on the Father's right hand. And therefore, because of that, we have boldness to access that throne of grace, to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. You and I do not come to a God with our own merit, with our own worth, our own ability, because we have none. We are sinners, like Isaiah said, from the top of the head to the sole of the foot. We are vile and we are putrid and we are sore. But by Christ and by God's good grace, you and I can come to Him on the merits of Christ. The reason to pray in Jesus' name, as I said, is John 14, 14. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's a promise from God's Word. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that if you come to God and you pray to Him and the power of the Spirit and the authority and the merit of Christ that God will answer your prayer? He said He would. He said that He would if you did it in accordance to His will. This is a promise from God's Word. So I don't know what you maybe came here today that is a burden upon your heart and a burden upon your soul, but you mark it down. When you pray in Jesus' name, don't pass over those words. Believe it in your heart. Believe it in your mind. Because Jesus said, if you ask in my name, I will do it. As we approach the Lord in prayer, each member of the Godhead is intimately involved. As we prayed as a Trinitarian act, we pray to the Father again in the power of the Spirit, in the merit, and in the name and the authority of Christ. But now the question should be asked, who can call Him Father? There is a false idea about that says we are all children of God. And He is the Father of us all. They call it the fatherhood of God. And I'm sure you've heard that term. Well, we're just all children of God. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that every person on planet earth is a child of God. And so, well, Pastor, can you prove that to me from the Bible? I sure can. John 8 and verse number 44, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees said, You are of your father, the what? The devil. And the lust of your father you will do. So there are children that are children of who? The devil. He said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, that you once were children of disobedience. Ephesians 2 and verse 3, you are children of wrath, even as others. So today you are either a child of God or a child of the devil. There is no limbo. You are either a saint or an ain't. You're either one or the other. You're either saint or you're ain't. Only those quickened by divine grace can be called children of God. And John 1, verse 12 and 13, the Bible says that we have received power to be called the sons or the children of God. And this has come apart, uh, come to us by the new birth. In John 3, verse 3 through verse number 8, we were born again. But why did you and I need to be born again? Because something was wrong with our first birth. Adam's transgression imputed to us. This is why we must be born again, because we are born in sin, separated from God. And we need to be reunited to Him by the work of His Son. 
So we pray to the Father. And it is only the children of God that can rightfully pray to the Father. And not everyone is a child of God, only those that have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb. And what a glorious truth that as a blood-bought child of God that we can approach the Creator of the universe as a loving Father. His wrath is no longer upon us, but Jesus Christ has become our propitiation. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And the word propitiation carries the idea of mercy seat, but it means more than that. It carries the idea of Jesus becoming our wrath deflector. That Jesus Christ, as He hung up on the cross for you and me, not only was my sin poured upon Christ, but the wrath that my sin deserved came pouring down upon Christ and as Jesus hung between heaven and earth for you and for me and he cried out Father I thirst it was at that moment that God turned up the bitter cup and poured it upon Christ and all the wrath that my sin and your sin deserved was poured out upon Christ he deflects God's wrath for you and for me and for his elect people the wrath of God is no longer upon us, but we know His loving embrace. What a glorious truth. He is our Father. As our Father, He cares for us. He guides us. He instructs us. He disciplines us in loving discipline. He protects us, and He provides for us. There's a great thing when you and I come to the Lord in prayer and we say, Our Father... We are addressing the creator of the universe. We are addressing the one who cares, guides, instructs, disciplines, protects, and provides for us. We are addressing the one who has brought us out of darkness into his glorious light. We are addressing the one who has planned our salvation from the beginning of the world. There are those who also have devised the idea that God is only revealed as Father in the New Testament. And that in his progressive revelation, he was never known in this way in the Old Testament. So let me boil that down to you. And this is what I believe for many years, that well in the New Testament, we simply call him Father. And this is something that they never knew of in the Old Testament. They only knew of God as Jehovah and as Yahweh and holy and righteous. And they looked upon him with fear and they never knew him as Father. And that is what is taught in many pulpits and many churches that God progressively over time into the New Testament Jesus revealed to us that God is our Father and uh, in the different aspects of God. But this is not true. Father is not a new name given to God in the New Testament. It is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to designate God's special relation to Israel. Just look with me at a couple verses just to see this. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter number 32. Deuteronomy chapter number 32 and verse number 6. Deuteronomy 32 and verse number 6. It says, Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Here God is addressing Israel and he calls himself the father who has bought them and brought them out of Egyptian bondage. 
And this is used again in Psalm 103. It's mentioned in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Malachi. He is called the father to Israel. Well, Israel is called in the Old Testament, not only uh, is God seen as father to Israel, but Israel is seen as the son of God. Look with me in Exodus chapter 4, in verse number 22. Exodus 4, and verse number 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament of the Old Covenant knew something of the father and son relationship. The church in the Old Testament knew what it was to have God as their father. And you and I today can still know the same God as father today. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. God does not change, Malachi said. He is father in the Old Testament. He is still father to his people today. He is the father to Israel. And guess what? Today we are the Israel of God. Today you and I that are bought by the blood of Christ, we are the Israel of God. The Bible makes that very clear in the book of Ephesians chapter number 2, verse 11 through verse number 19, that you and I once were strangers of the covenant. We were strangers from the promises, but you and I have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ, and the middle wall of partition has been broken down, and God has made both one. The Bible says in Philippians 3, 3, that we are the circumcision, speaking of the Gentiles. Romans 2, 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, that is, his heart has been circumcised. Galatians 3, 29 says, if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You and I are simply part of that same Old Testament body that has continued all the way now. The church began in the Old Testament and it runs its way all the way through the New Testament and will continue all the way through till Jesus comes again. And you and I are part of that glorious body of Christ known as the Israel of God. And you and I as Gentiles have been grafted into it. Romans chapter number 11 makes it very clear. There's not two different trees. There's only one tree. And you and I as Gentiles have been grafted into that, wild, into that olive tree. And one day God will graft back in the natural branches, which is Israel. And I don't have time to get into all that. That's all Bible prophecy. Maybe we'll deal with that another time. But we are part of the Israel of God. We are part of God's chosen people. There's only been one people of God from the Old Testament all the way to where we are today. And as he was father to the church in the Old Testament, he is father to you and I today. When we pray, when you and I pray, we are entering into a Trinitarian act. We pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit and the name and the authority of Christ. We pray and we come as sons and daughters redeemed by blood. So the question you must ask yourself today, is he my father? Is he your father? Can you say that you know him as father today? When we pray, we come to the same covenant-keeping God as found in the Old Testament. He is still a God to the true Israel today. He is still a father to the true Israel today. Therefore, we can come with great boldness before him. So here in Matthew... 
recording for us the words of Christ. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. So as you approach God in prayer number one, when you say, our Father, you approach Him, you begin to thank Him for everything that the idea of being a father employs. You thank Him for His protection. You thank Him for His provision. You thank Him for His salvation. You thank Him for bringing you out of darkness into light. So this is how you are to approach God as Father first. And everything that is employed in that term, Father. But then He says, not only pray our Father, but He says, our Father, secondly, which art in heaven. So we dealt first with our relation, but notice, secondly, His habitation. Our Father which art in heaven. And the word heaven here, the Greek word actually is in the plural. Our Father which art in the heavens. He fills everything. This speaks of the sphere of His reign. And at Psalm 103 in verse 19, the Scripture says, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. Daniel 4.26, After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. This is not speaking of some cosmic chance and chance that is ruling, but this is referring to the one in the heavens, God Himself that rules. We sing that hymn about the one who reigns in majesty supreme, and this is the God that we are speaking about. We pray to our Father which is in heaven, the sovereign one of the universe. He is our Father above all other so-called gods. There is none like Him who fills heaven and earth. The Bible says, as the earth is his footstool, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. He is a God that is immense and cannot be understood. He is a God that is eternal, and this is a God that you and I pray to. And do we really think that as we approach this God who dwells in the heavens, that he is unconcerned about our problems, or that he is unable to do for us what we need? Oh no, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. God said in His Word in the Sermon on the Mount as well, in chapter number 7, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father knowing. And He said, are you not much more uh, uh, worthy? And are you not much more uh, of a concern to the Father than a simple sparrow that falls to the ground? He is the one that rules in majesty supreme. And there is none like Him who fills heaven and earth. Behold Him in His majestic power. I want you to think for a moment. As you pray to the Father, where is He now? I want you to get a vision of that heavenly courtroom. I want you to get a vision of that heavenly place where God sits on a throne that is exalted and magnified above the heavens. And I want you to look with me at a couple passages that refer to that. And I want you to see His habitation. Look with me in the book of Isaiah chapter number 6. is a passage we are familiar with. And Isaiah chapter number 6. And I want you to see in this passage what is going on in heaven, the majestic power of His habitation. In Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is no doubt the Son of God pre-incarnate. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Just try to picture that in your mind. This is the God that you are approaching. 
You are approaching the God who is sitting upon a throne which represents judgment, which represents holiness, which represents sovereign majesty. And He is there seated upon that throne and He is high and lifted up in His proper position and His train, that is His robe, is filling the temple. I don't know if you've ever watched any of the coronations. It's been some years ago uh, when the Queen of England was coronated. But normally when a king or a queen is crowned and you see their crown and you see the robe that they wear and it is very long and it goes all the way out the back of the room. And many times you see this even at a wedding with a bride who has a very long gown and it is very long. And here the Bible says the train of the Lord is filling the entire temple. Speaking of His glory, His splendor filling the whole temple. And notice what goes on in verse 2. And above it, that is above this throne, stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face. With twain He covered His feet. And with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried in the house was filled with smoke. That is the image of the one that we approach this morning. We pray to our Father, but He dwells in a high and lofty place, Isaiah said, and He inhabiteth eternity. I want you to understand this morning that the one to whom you pray is not simply the big man upstairs. He is not simply your buddy up in the sky, but the one that you and I approach is a holy, reverent, thrice holy God of the universe that could have left you in your sin condition, but He chose to have mercy upon upon you. And you say, why did He have mercy upon me? I don't know. Because He has mercy upon whom He will have mercy. And He will harden upon whom He hardens. But God has chosen to demonstrate mercy. And this is a scene that we come before. And notice what Isaiah said in verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So here we find an example in the Word of God about this majestic throne room of heaven. I want you to also look with me in the book of Ezekiel chapter number 1. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter number 1 and we see this once again. In Ezekiel chapter number 1. I want you to look with me at verse number 26. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse number 26. Ezekiel 1 and verse number 26. Hear the word of the Lord. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man. Above it, 
and upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, from the appearance of his loins even downward. And I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, and the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. Here is another reference to us of this glorious, majestic scene of one seated upon the throne. And it said the glory of that place was like a rainbow and the day of rain. And it said it was like fire all around. It is a place of holiness and majesty and wonder. John saw a very similar scene in the book of the Revelation, chapter number 1. So today we come before a sovereign of the universe in the place of prayer. And to us he has graciously extended the scepter of mercy. And today we have access to his habitation, not based upon our merit, as I said earlier, or our worth, but upon the merit and the worth of another Jesus Christ. And each time we enter the place of prayer, we are transferred spiritually, as it were, to the very same place where Isaiah stood. When you and I bow down on our knees, get it in your mind that you are before the one where the angels still cry, holy, holy, holy. You are still before the one where the seraphims hide their faces before the one who sits upon the throne, that this is the God that you are approaching. And the place of prayer. We are on holy ground, for we are standing in his presence. Keep this scene before you as you approach God in prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, this should hopefully keep you and I from dry praying, from repetitious praying from irreverent praying, from casual praying, and from distracted praying. God no longer, as I said, becomes the big man upstairs, but the sovereign king of creation. And approaching him in a way that does away with flippancy in the place of prayer. How often people are flippant as they come before the Lord in prayer. So as I pray before the Lord, it should even affect the way that I speak I'm speaking to the sovereign of the universe. I'm not speaking to my friend next door. I'm speaking to the sovereign king who purchased me with his blood. I'm speaking to the one who sent his son to die on my behalf. It should not only affect the way I speak, but the way I think, and even the way that I come before him. I'm in an audience with one, but it is the sovereign of the universe. We come before a great and mighty God. So combine these two ideas together. Our Father, which art in heaven. Combine this phrase shows us that we have a relationship of sonship with the sovereign king of the universe. The same Father in heaven Abraham had, we have today. He was a father to Israel in the Old Testament, and he remains a father to the true Israel today. He was a father who dwelt in the heavens and ruled in the heavens in the Old Testament, and he still dwells in the heavens and rules in the heavens today. And as you come before him in prayer, realize that he is our father, and he will withhold no good thing from his children If you're there in Matthew 6, just turn over to Matthew 7 with me. And verse 7 through 11. 
He says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you? Whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks fish, will he give him a serpent? Now notice verse 11. Now this is quite amazing. If ye then being evil, think about that. We are evil in our nature. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, good, give good things to them that ask him? Your father delights to give good things to you. He is not narcissistic. He is not oblivious to your need. He is not unconcerned about your condition. He desires to answer your prayer. If we as fathers in our own right can give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the perfect Father in heaven give you what you need and your hour of need? He certainly can. He is a loving Father who delights to answer prayer and to do so in a sovereign way. What request maybe this morning is heavy upon your own heart? Your loving Father delights and longs to hear it. He wants to hear the burdens of your heart. He said, well, Pastor, I can't even pray because it's such a burden. Can I remind you that tears is still a language that God understands? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that He takes our tears and He bottles them up. And one day they will be showed to us in heaven. You say, I don't know what to say. You just pray and weep your way to the Father. And the Bible says that the Spirit will pray with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you wonder if He can even answer it? You might be thinking this problem is just too difficult. It's just too hard, or God is not concerned about me. My friend, God is very much concerned about where you are today. He is your Father, and any good Father is concerned and cares about His children. Can I remind you, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. I was just reading in my Bible, reading back through Genesis again, about Abraham. And remember, Abraham was an old man, and Sarah was as an old woman as well. And God said, you will have a son. And they laughed, and they said, this is impossible. But remember what God said, with God all things are possible. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Can I remind you that the Lord is still in heaven, and it is the heavens that rule. God is still God of your circumstances. He's still God of the circumstance. So I invite you today to come before Him as a little child with confidence that He can do all things, and He does all things well. So, the message this morning is looking at that first clause, Our Father which art in heaven, our relationship to Him, our Father, and His habitation which is in heaven. It is my prayer that you will be there one day with Him in heaven. And the only way that you can be with Him in heaven is you must know Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and Lord. You must repent of your sin. You must look to Christ. You must ask Him to forgive you. And I guarantee you in the authority of the Word of God, if you would pray and ask Christ to save you, He will save you today. He will keep you saved. And one day He'll bring you to heaven to be with Him throughout all of eternity. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the truths of Holy Scripture. God, you are good and you do us good. God, I pray that something that was said today was a help to thy people. God, as we consider this prayer together, I pray that, God, you'd help us to grow in our relationship, in our growth, in the Word of God, in the place of prayer. That, God, we would be men and women that seek thy face, that know what it means to take hold of the horns of the altar and not let go until we hear from heaven. So, God, we pray that you would allow us to depart with thy blessing. God, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. For we ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.